Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. And welcome to our Monday show. We're going to spend uh, the first half of the show on politics and the second half of the show on comedy. Uh, we're going to talk about, the obviously, the you-know-what, the presidential race here in the first segment. We're going to talk about the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt in the second segment. I am actually going to be able to draw a Papoulian through line from this election to Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, but you just have to wait for that part. I do feel as though Tina Fey is doing for comedy what Dizzy uh, Gillespie and Charlie Parker did for jazz, just kind of rewriting the rhythm of it. So... Um, did I say Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker? I didn't transpose their name. I'm in one of those cerebral states today where I, I may say thing, even more things that don't make sense. So um, uh, joining us right now is Andrew O'Hare, senior writer at Salon. Uh, he's been writing about the election. Uh, and most recently, he's written a column. I think we've all been through presidential, presidential elections to which our immediate reaction was, well, lesser of two evils or none of the above or is there anybody else running? I mean, we've actually had that feeling if we've been through enough of these cycles at other times. But this is different. Uh, the net negatives, which is the number of people who like you minus the number of people who don't like you, uh, of these two candidates are, are unprecedented, uh, Andrew writes. Uh, Trump, I think, last time I, I looked, was clocking about 30, negative 33. Uh, and uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, was clocking around negative 21. Now, they're not the nominees yet. They're just not, they're both, you know, essentially front runners for the nomination. Uh, but it, there doesn't seem to be uh, a candidate who d- isn't struggling with some pretty significant negatives. Uh, and uh, and certainly to have these two people be the front runners raises the question, how did we get here? How did we find ourselves in this position? So, Andrew O'Hare, how, how did we get here? How did we have how, how are the front runners two people who have such incredibly high net negatives as to have essentially no parallel that you could find going back 200 years? Yeah, it's an extraordinary turn of events. I mean, you don't want to fetishize these opinion polls and say that they tell you the whole story because they never do. But, you know, the CBS News, who are a fairly reputable organization, has been asking this question since 1984. What is your opinion, favorable or unfavorable, of the leading presidential candidates? And they haven't had anybody in that time span come close to either of these two. So it, it, really, it really is an extraordinary turn of events. And I think the answer to your question is, it took a long time for us to get here. It took a dysfunctional political system over the last 50 years gradually falling apart. It took the two parties ignoring what was happening to them, ignoring the fact that both of them in different ways were losing touch with their base and you know, pursuing a politics of sort of paralysis and triangulation. And, and here we are. One of the parties is in obvious disrepair and chaos in a state of virtual civil war. And the other one is, I would say, more quietly and more politely going through a version of the same thing. And even though the two front, I, I got castigated a lot for comparing Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton when the only point that I was making is 
that in, it's remarkable that they are, le- they are the two leading contenders to be the next president, officially at least, and more than 50 percent of the public in both cases doesn't like them. I mean, in some ways, yeah, it took uh, decades and decades and decades to get here. And then in another way, you could say that our politics are have been set up for a long time to serve the interests of the citizens of a pretty hegemonic country, right? A country that sort of led the world in, in almost every possible category, uh, the greatest military power, well, we haven't stopped being that, but the greatest economic power, too, uh, and, and a country that was able to call the tune and a country that was able to offer some of its citizens in the lower socioeconomic ranks a pretty clear ladder uh, up out of those ranks. And so those are the things that have changed. And some of them changed slowly, Andrew, and then some of them changed much more rapidly rapidly starting around 2008. I'm wondering how much of it is just the, the fact that neither party's message, uh, or, or at least the, the mechanics behind that message, really addre- addresses the reality of the United States in 2016. I think that's very well put. I, and I, and I think you're right that it, 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 it simultaneously took a long time and that has changed a lot more recently. With the economic uh, downturn, the crisis of 2008, Coupled with the total paralysis in Washington, the Republican policy of blocking anything that, you know, President Obama wanted to do, uh, whichever party you agree with, that was a prescription for disaster, um, I think, for both parties, ultimately. And, and yeah, the, I agree also, I think this is a very important point, that neither party has quite grasped the nature of economic life on the ground in the United States, which is a loss of relative privilege. You make the excellent point that for many years, the, the working class in this country, especially if you happen to be white, had a very clear ladder to lead from you know, relative poverty to relative wealth. That was possible for several generations of people. And I think that both parties have lost sight of the fact that on the ground that feels untrue to people now. It feels like that has been completely lost. And, you know, um, the the whole thing that Bernie Sanders latched onto where he asks everybody at his at his events, you know, how much are you in debt for your college education? And you get you hear answers like ninety seven thousand dollars, you know, for somebody who's, I don't know, twenty seven years old. Um, and I think that in, until now, both parties have been completely ignoring um, that economic reality on, on the ground. Now, Donald Trump has a negative 33 for, for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, and, and first of all, he's, he's the front runner for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about right now. That yeah. pe- people feel as though uh, the economy left them behind uh, and that they have no obvious means of catching up. Uh, and he is the person who's at least speaking about that. He may not be speak, speaking all that plausibly, and we can, we can come back to that. But he's got these negative ratings, too. And one thing that I've noticed, I was actually at a Trump rally, my first one ever on Friday night, is that, you know, he is repositioning himself. He, he now knows that, first of all, going into Cleveland, he has to have some power brokers, some kind of Romney and McCain-era power brokers at his side for rules fights and for delegate problems. He, he can't go it alone even as much as he thought he might be able to do. So he's got to re- calibrate a little bit. And he also, he sees the same numbers you and I see. So he knows going into a general, he's got to change that. So I'm noticing less uh, of the xenophobic message, less of the misogynistic comments, uh, more of an attempt within the framework of being Donald Trump, which is, which is what it is, to be a slightly more engaging and, and less alienating candidate. I don't, I don't know if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that actually started some time ago. I noticed as early as New Hampshire that he was beginning to modulate his tone a little bit. 
you know, he mentions the things that get the big rise from his supporters. He mentions the wall. He makes reference to, you know, Muslims and some vague notion that they're causing problems for us. And then he moves on to a more sort of optimistic and, and upbeat tone. Um, I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know how, how it's going to play. But you're absolutely right. I mean, look, this is a guy, whatever you might want to say about him and his, his business success not being all that it's cracked up to be, and that's true. But this is a guy who's famous for writing a book or having a book written for him, which was called The Art of the Deal. He knows how to close a sale. And that's what he's trying to do now with what remains of, you know, the Republican Party. It's a tough sale to close in this case. And then he's also thinking about, obviously, about building a strategy for competing against uh, against Hillary Clinton, presumably in the fall. Um, can he rebuild his image in a way such that he is more acceptable to a broader range of the population and doesn't lose the people who are really excited about him because he's determined to tear down the whole castle? You know, that's a tough that's a tough one. I think also trying to, to, to sort of parse out the psychology of, of different factions within Trump nation is something that I, I think that I'm struggling to do. And, and I, I haven't seen it done uh, thoroughly yet. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a, a pretty difficult thing to nail down. And, and I had questions Friday night about I mean, I talked to a lot of people who I talked to as many people as I could at this rally. I talked to people who didn't strike me as people who kind of maybe fit our worst stereotype of the Trumpian, you know, Z xenophobic, uh, crypto racist, uh, you know, endorsing the worst things that uh, Trump has has said and, and maybe part of that contingent of of, of white supremacists that, that Trump has had trouble in the past completely separating himself from. I saw very few people who fit that picture or even a slightly more palatable version of that picture. I talked to more people who really did sort of fit the category of, uh, of you know, white middle to lower middle class to working class people who thought they were working very hard for not much money in an environment which just wasn't set up for them and were were desperate for change and saw him as the only vehicle for change. But I also saw that he could get them to be the other thing pretty easily when he wanted them, once he started talking to them, if he wanted them to kind of gin themselves up into that, 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 that thing that I was describing earlier, he could get them to tip that way. But I think, Andrew, in the press, we're still trying to figure out how much of this are the ugly, scary, crazy people and how much are some people who just have some real fairly reasonable critiques of the American economy and, and nowhere else with the possible exception of Bernie Sanders to put them. Yeah, I, I think that's a really key question. And I think I come down fairly similar to your analysis there. There, there are some disturbing currents within the Trump demographic, but I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to say they're all, that it's all a whole bunch of neo-Confederates and neo-Nazis where the primary concern is racism or a white supremacism. I think those issues are so intertwined with a sense of, of deprivation, of relative loss of privilege, that is based on some real, actual, you know, material facts, that it's very difficult to tease those things out. And most of the time, most of the Trump voters that I've encountered have been much closer to what you're talking about. I, I met a lot of Trump voters in New Hampshire where there are very few people of color of any description in that state. And they mostly weren't concerned about immigrants or Muslims or any of those things. They felt like the economy had left them behind, and this was the only guy who could, who was talking about it. And I think for a variety of reasons, they were people who simply weren't comfortable voting for Bernie Sanders, cultural reasons maybe. And, yeah, I, I, think, I think that the media defaults maybe a little too easily to painting everybody with this, who supports Trump with this, with this brush. We have a real problem in this country with um, – 
how we relate to class and how we relate to the working class and how we segment people based on on race and racial attitudes. And I, I think it's I think it's a really complicated phenomenon. I think it's dangerous to dismiss the Trump demographic too simplistically. Yeah, I mean the other the other half of that. Like I, I did, I walked out of there thinking, well, I didn't really meet any real monstrously horrible people. I, I talked to people who you know were basically the people who are installing the garage door next door to my house or something. And and on the other hand, one of the things that we know is that people who do feel very, very betrayed by the political system uh, and by the structure of the American economy rarely sit there thinking, well, I don't know whose fault it is. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I dropped the ball somehow. That's just sort of not how people react. So uh, offered a possible enemy, offered uh, a possible target to push back against, um, it it doesn't take much for them to to get fired up. Now, sometimes it's Hillary Clinton. That's talking to one, one uniting force among Trump supporters is they they seem to regard her as the spawn of Satan. We recorded a little bit of um, just back and forth with vendors, demonstrators, uh, Trump supporters outside the Hartford Convention Center on Friday night. Here's what it sounded like. Everybody's hungry. Let me know. I got a Hillary KFC special. Two fat thighs, two small breasts, and a left wing. And shirts and buttons here. Hillary for prison. Hey, there's a Bernie burnout. <laughs> got a Bernie burnout. You haven't been looking in the mirror recently, have you? I'm not a burnout. No, but you're selling stuff from China, right? No, I'm not. Most of Trump stuff comes from China. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. That's what you get for listening. No, look at all those high-owned hotels. I think New York City. Yeah. Hey, you know what do you call a guy that uh, gets dirt on Bernie? An archaeologist. That's funny. He's at the Vatican right now. (laughs) He's at the Vatican right now. Yeah. He flew there last night after the debate. Yeah, he landed and spoke at the Vatican today. Another guy that wants everything for free. So a little back and forth between protesters, uh, vendors, uh, people like that. We're talking to Andrew O'Hare from Salon uh, right now. So since they're talking about Bernie being at the Vatican and about Hillary, maybe we can uh, shift focus uh, just a little bit here. Um, it, it does seem as though uh, the current frontrunner status of Hillary Clinton is a slightly different animal from, from Trump. I mean, uh, in some ways, this is the embrace of a set of party mechanics as opposed to the outright rejection of it. I mean, the reason that, that somebody with pretty high negative like Hillary Clinton uh, seems to be the front runner for the Democrats has more to do with with the fi- the failure of the Democrats to produce a more palatable candidate and the inability of the party mechanisms to reject the unpalatable candidate. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is it is a funny turn of events because yeah, it, they're almost um, negative images of each other. The the Republican Party is imploding and is getting the outsider that they didn't want. I think the party establishment is still very uncomfortable with with the prospect of a, a Trump nomination. Uh, on the other side, we have a party mechanism that is functioning approximately as it was intended to and is uh, the front runner who has all the money, who has the deep institutional roots and all the connections, appears to be uh, in the driver's seat to this point. Uh, that could still change, but I think it's unlikely. And, yeah, uh, I think the problem was that the Democratic Party never produced an alternative candidate and so they're facing this peculiar situation where a guy who hasn't in his whole electoral career been a member of the democratic party is the, is the leading opponent which which creates an obvious problem and um yeah i think that that in in the case of of hillary clinton the reasons for her negatives i want to be clear about that are very very different from from the, from the reasons for for trump's negatives they're not parallel in that way 
No, although, uh, well, actually, we should take a break and come back to this. I, I, I think, but I would say before we take the break that that some of them have to do in each case with what are perceived personal liabilities, right? That um, you know, a lot of Hillary Clinton's the, the the sharp negatives sometimes have to do with the the sense that maybe she's not entirely truthful or that she's some kind of arriviste who is you know trying to claw as much money for herself as she possibly can from places like Goldman Sachs. That they, you know, there's there are some similarities here anyway. But let's have a little break here and then more of Andrew O'Hare after this. If there's only one president, it's either he or she. But if we had two presidents, how much better that would be. I'm running for president, won't you run with me? All right, we're back. We're talking to uh, Andrew O'Hare. He's a senior writer at Salon. We're talking, of course, what else do we talk about on Mondays? We talk about the weekend in politics and, and what's going on here. So, Andrew, in your piece, one of the questions that you raise is whether or not these are these two candidacies with their high and negative ratings are, are one-offs or, or or part of some permanent trend. So, I mean, looking at Sanders, we could say, well, you know, in some ways it, it was ever thus, whether it was uh, McGovern or Jerry Brown or, or Howard Dean. Uh, there's always, you know, somebody basically running on the left of the Democrat and Bill Bradley would be another one running on the left of the Democratic Party, running against the power structure, whatever it's perceived to be. Um, and and that Bernie Sanders is a slightly more exciting in, in a certain way anyway, and more unorthodox uh, version of that. But it, it's not going to be that different. And whatever happens in the next uh, in between now and November, uh, four years down the road, the Democratic Party is not going to look all that different. And then the other argument is now this is some kind of fracture, which is going to heal in a very different way. Um, and I, I sense that you're in the latter camp, that you feel as though some kind of paradigm shift is going on here. Um, I, and to be honest, I've kind of waffled on that question, but I, I, think, you, I think you read me correctly. Where, where I'm coming down at the moment, I think that there's a lot of danger for the Democratic Party, danger, whatever, a, a lot of a, a significant prospects for a major rupture uh, in the Democratic Party. And partly it's the thing that we were talking about earlier, the fact that they haven't understood the extent to which the, the, the grassroots population that, that supports Democratic issues generally, supports Democratic candidates generally, feels kind of left behind by the party as it now exists. And as I also mentioned in my, in my piece, both parties have ignored the existence of the independent bloc of voters, which are far larger a group than people who identify as either uh, Democrats or Republicans. And they essentially behave as, this, as if those people are Democrats or Republicans who haven't signed on with the party. And one of the things that the Bernie Sanders phenomenon demonstrates is that it's not quite that simple. And that, that uh, it, it is, I think, possible, not guaranteed, but possible, that the fracture that Sanders represents is more significant than those other candidates that you're talking about, because he has rejected the, the, you know, the campaign finance system because he has rejected the way that the Democratic Party has structured itself. Um, and he represents, a, he has obviously appealed to a young generation of people with little previous experience in politics who may not want to go back to the sort of center-left, you know, top-down management style, which, let's also say this, has failed miserably. Look at the country between the coasts where, you know, approximately close to 40 of the 50 states, I think it's 39 of the 50 states, have, uh, you know, one or the other house or both controlled by Republicans and or a Republican governor. And that's a massive change from even a decade ago. 
Yeah, and I guess the question will be, um, you know, four years, eight years uh, in future cycles, or maybe even two years in terms of midterm elections, where will those people be? Will they, first of all, be as engaged uh, as they are right now? And if they are engaged, say, four to eight years from now, will they be in the same place? You know, and that's a hard thing to predict. I mean, as people get older, yeah. their circumstances change. They maybe a little feel a little less like they've got nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an impossible thing to predict. And I think that uh, I understand the argument that this is just a blip, that we're going to go back to, to, to business as usual. But no, my fundamental read on this is that both parties are failing to represent the American people. I think that's where I come down. And the fact that uh, the, in the Gallup poll this year, uh, fewer than 30% of people identified themselves as Democrats, and that's the first time ever. The Republican percentage is lower still than that, but 29% are co- called themselves Democrats in that most recent uh, survey. And in an election year, it normally goes up. Mm-hmm. You normally see party identification increase during those cycles and then decrease during the off years. And to have it go in the other direction, I think that's very significant. And, you know, when looking at the Republican Party, I mean, I, th- I feel as though not for nothing did they start out with this cheesecake factory menu of like 17 different candidates. Because, <laughs> and, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that when you're running towards such a limited demographic, in other words, they really still haven't found a way to talk to very many young people. They haven't found a way to talk to anybody of color. Um, they, they have uh, they struggle also with with women in certain circumstances. You know, then you've got to get all of what's left. You essentially have to go try to capture all of what's left. And it's tough for one candidate to do that. And even with the three left standing, you know, you have Cruz who's basically going to be popular in certain parts of the country and probably in certain concentrations in certain parts of the country. He's kind of a rural candidate in a certain way. And his message is going to go over a lot better there. Kasich is very suburban here in Connecticut. Uh, You can really see that. He's going to run really strong in the suburbs. And, And Trump has tried to become the kind of Ronald Reagan uh, Republican who, who could maybe get some people who, who weren't in the fold. And you talking to his supporters, I'm noticing some of them do come to, from either urban or almost semi-urban areas, the, the sort of the border areas right around cities. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he's got a slightly more urban-feeling message. But whether those three message can, messages can coalesce into anything down the line, I think, is, is very suspect. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's the most obvious thing to say in 2016 that the Republican Party is in trouble. I, I think they're going to have to kind of, you know, burn down the village in order to save it. And, and I don't know what that's going to look like down the line. I don't have any doubt that if you started from scratch and built up a sort of pro-business, low-tax party where you could get rid of the, you know, overt racism and xenophobia, you know, that sort of sounds like the Republican Party of 1972 or something. Um, I don't have any doubt that that's a party that could have some success, uh, just in, in sort of analytical terms. Whether they can accomplish anything like that with, uh, based on the, the ruination that they're looking at right now, I have no idea. And I think Trump's, you know, if Trump gets out, if Trump loses a general election or doesn't get the nomination and goes away or goes rogue or whatever, I do think he's going to be hard to replicate in a way. One of the things that he's done very well has almost nothing to do with his ideology. I mean, listening to his speech on Friday night, it was something close to 98 percent process. And by process, I really mean just the process of running for president. He talked almost exclusively about his dealings with the media, about how much. He doesn't like Ted Cruz. Yeah. He mentioned coming down on the escalator with Melania. 
Melania two or three times over the course of the speech, uh, how many people they have in the crowds, whether their crowd size is underreported. I mean, just on and on and, and very, very little substance and very little call for any substance. And, and you realize this is a guy who, first of all, understands how interested Americans are in process. He was in reality television, which is all basically about showing you, yeah. like breaking down the wall and sort of showing you how things happen as opposed to showing you the things that are happening. Um, and he's also, he's just a very gifted performer. He's even, you know, one of the things I was noticing on, on Friday night, too, is, you know, you've got to have a great voice. If you're going to run on rallies, if rallies are going to be your big thing. You've got to be a vo- have a voice that doesn't wear out. And it's got to sound kind of good when you're yelling. And he just, he got the, he won the genetic lottery on that one. He just happens to sound pretty good ye- yelling. And so, yeah. you know, you put, put together all that kind of stuff, plus whatever weird reverse charisma he has. They're not going to be able to go down into Frankenstein's laboratory and make another one of these that has slightly more palatable politics. No, I think not. This is whatever happens with Donald Trump. It's it's a one time phenomenon. You're, you're absolutely right. He's a great showman, and he is almost more of a meta candidate than a, than a, than an actual candidate. Nobody expected the meta candidate to get to this point, and I think he doesn't know what to do now. I've thought that all along that Donald Trump himself was not sure that he wanted to win the nomination, not sure that he wanted to be president. He's probably smart enough to know that none of the things he's promising can actually be accomplished from the White House. Um, so what, what he does with that information and with the current front-runner position, I have absolutely no idea. But he's a businessman. He knows how to make it up as he goes along. You know, yeah. you, you didn't think he was going to get the permit for this golf course. Well, it turns out they can build it after all. The, now he's just hiring the landscaping architects and stuff like that. Uh, I, I think he's he's going to figure it out to a certain degree anyway. Um, Andrew O'Hare, so great to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Andrew O'Hare, read his stuff in salon.com. Uh, it's terrific. Um, before we go to the fundraising, i got to tell you, first of all, Thursday will be Hillary Rodden, Rodham Clinton Day. She will be visiting Connecticut. And Friday will be Kasich Day. Uh, he will be at Glastonbury High School for a rally, and then I think he's got a fundraiser after that. So we are getting those visits. And speaking of visits, you are about to visit with some very nice people who are involved in fundraising here at this radio station. And I have to say, if you enjoy the kind of conversation we just had with Andrew, if you enjoy some of the crazy stuff we do uh, on this show, some of the topics that we tackle that no other radio show in its right mind uh, would tackle, uh, then this is the right time to show your appreciation for that. So when you, if you do it while we're on the air, it means that much more in terms of how it's counted in our favor when the, uh, the, you know, the celestial beings on the sixth floor are looking down and, and deciding whether or not we're, we're worthy. So if you like us, this is a simple way of saying it, if you like us, pledge now, 860-275. Oh, no, that's not the pledge number. No, forget that number. Forget that number. They'll tell you the number. It's 1-800-284-5788. I, I did it from memory, but I didn't do it right. It doesn't make any difference what I say the number is. Listen to them say the number. The key here is you've got to pledge. Go at WNPR.org, too. That's the other way you can pledge. My internet has been broken. How's Pataki doing in the delegate count? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Tiana Duquette and Alexandra Ingber. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bobby Jindal. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Here and Now staff and their Huckabee t-shirts, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, are stadiums and pro sports worth spending money on? And now, back to Colin. 
Yeah, so that's actually going to be uh, tomorrow's show was um, taped live at Watkinson a few weeks ago, uh, and we've turned it into a uh, radio show about, well, as you probably uh, know, the Yard Goats are um, out on the road right now because their own stadium's not ready, and uh, there are still people 19 years uh, after the Hartford Whalers left who are still pining for them, believing that they will return every day. We've had lots of other conversations about whether it makes sense to spend money on stuff like that. I mean, taxpayer money. And so uh, that'll be uh, the conversation for tomorrow's show. It was a really good conversation. We had a great panel. I think you'll really enjoy it. Of course, what else am I going to say? I'm going to say something else. All right. So uh, the next question is, how good is The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, the second season uh, of this series crafted by uh, Tina Fey uh, and one of her collaborators uh, dropped on Friday? Um, A lot of us rushed to watch either all or some of it. I believe in kind of saving some for dessert. So I've watched uh, about half of it uh, at this point. And we want to talk a little bit about what what this series does and doesn't do and how it may be different from a, a lot of comedy that you see on television. Jesse David Fox, senior uh, editor at Vulture, is joining us right now. Hi, welcome to the conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, um... I feel as though Tina Fey, both on 30 Rock, which you uh, have done uh, a lot of um, sort of almost quant type analysis of, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and uh, both on 30 Rock and, and on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, that she really is kind of writing comedy in a slightly different way, maybe even a significantly different way. I sort of compare her to what Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie did for jazz. She's kind of putting the beats in different places uh, and, mm-hmm. and putting the structure of jokes in different places. Uh, I know you've got a lot of thought thoughts about what a <laughs> Tina Fey joke is is so so sure. let's talk about that sure so i think the main thing is a uh, it's a it's a matter of stressing the amount of jokes and how important they are to the time that's that's given i think you know the main kind of throwback to what this looks like it's kind of uh at least in television is the sentence which is are the jokes are probably the main reason we're doing this and the story and the characters are are, are kind of our jumping off points to get to get to write jokes. But especially this season, it's like we're going to swing for the fences, mm-hmm. which really at this time, on especially in sitcoms, you don't see as many shows really putting this much time into uh, giving this much time to their jokes. Right. So you, the. the... You know, in comedy, there's a term kind of the throwaway, right? It's the joke that doesn't necessarily further further the plot particularly. It may not even be too pegged closely to the thing that's going on in the plot at the moment. But but Faye kind of, she she sort of dispenses with that whole distinction. Everything is both a throwaway and not. Anybody could say almost anything at any given moment, provided it's funny. Yes, I mean, there there is a fact of, you know, there's a... Yeah, I mean, there there's a density to it in which there's you have a character who's narrated. You know, the example that I used when I wrote a piece about kind of the joke of this season, and there's a character who's kind of narrating her personal uh, she's her personal history with this other character and how before they got married and then the husband, uh, the person ran away, and she was talking about how she knew he was gay, um, and you know, it's like a nice moment that a show might let exist, but while at the same time you kind of have this cutaway of um you know this snl joke it's hard to kind of explain without really seeing it mm-hmm. but it's a willingness to allow kind of both to happen at the same time which is why it's particularly impressive which is like we're going to have a character have a real moment that's played out with this giant joke that kind of takes completely stalls the show to make sure it happens or there's you know a joke about chuck laurie writing the teenage Mutant ninja turtle theme song that truly has nothing to do with anything the series is about 
just seems like a fun fact that a writer learned, and they kind of built, you know, two minutes of an episode around it. Right. Uh, so uh, we're talking a little bit uh, about uh, the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Maybe we should uh, let you hear a little bit. Um, this is so we should say for people who are just absolutely uninitiated. Uh, the only thing we've said is so far is Tina Fey. The the, the uh, premise of this series is, and, and last season it seemed like a, a somewhat dark. Um, <laughs> Uh, premise uh, was that uh, some women had been held for 15 years in an underground bunker by a cult leader uh, to be played by John Hamm uh, and, and and that they they gotten out and she was one of the people who'd gotten out and as a result she'd missed 15 years of culture and so in many respects this is very much a series about culture about what you need to know about popular culture in order to understand your reality uh, so not for I mean there's sort of almost an intellectual justification for Chuck Lorre jokes and, and, and things like that. Here's yeah. um, Titus and Kimmy. Titus is uh, Kimmy is the, the this unbelievably naive and engaging and wonderful uh, and, and and upbeat uh, person who's been in this bunker for 15 years. She's got um, a roommate, uh, Titus Andromedon, a flamboyantly gay uh, uh, sort of soi disant uh, performer. Uh, here they're discussing the internet. Look. My sweet fancy Jesus, I'm a star. You're all dead to me. And guess who's coming to see it? Paddle Pond, Paddle Bell. I'm out of patties. Does it have to be a patty or did I do that? Even better. Remember the people who called you a Hitler? Well, I mentioned your workshop to them. No, no, no. It's great. They apologized. I told them all about you, and the web chat moderator himself, Masuda69, typed, I'm so sorry. We really care that he's your friend. Could you guys be any cooler? Oh, no, Kimmy. The internet doesn't talk like that. The internet talks like Chandler. What? No. I'm so sorry. We really care that he's your friend. Could you guys be any cooler? You can't tell when someone's being sarcastic on the internet. There he is. So there's uh, something, a piece of culture being explained by another piece of culture. This is very yeah, typical yeah. of what the series does. Although I would say that the episode in particular, in that that episode in particular, is the closest I've seen uh, Jesse to the series almost venturing into traditional sitcom waters. This is, it, it almost allows itself a moment of redemption. This is Titus Andromedon is doing this one person show and part of it has to do with him having lived a past life as a geisha. As a result, yeah, yeah. this triggers this wave uh, of hostility on the internet from people who are basically saying that this is you know, this is politically incorrect, it's exploitive, it's horrible, and then they watch it and they're moved by it. It seemed as, as I mean, Talk about a series with no hugging, no lesson, no lessons. This series goes Seinfeld one better, but this was like as close as they ever come to something like that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say well, one thing about that one joke, which is particularly also double funny, is Robert Carlock, the person who created the show with Tina Fey, wrote on Friends. Mm -hmm. Like he wrote Chandler for four years, so he has like there's a little there's like a triple meaning to that little Chandler joke as a person who's like well aware of what it's like to write like Chandler. So, I mean, I think this season, you know, no moment lasts too long. So any victory, it's pretty fleeting. But this episode was, that episode in particular, which is episode three, you know, there's there's a certain level, there's a not great execution of the certain sort of like what the internet, like what what the, what the internet is like and it's that criticism of it. Mm -hmm. But I think this season they really, you know, there's a, it's a love affair they have with Titus as an actor because the actor's name is also Titus, mm. and that character. And, I, you know, I think Robert Carlock has spoke that that episode kind of started with this desire to make that media 
uh, that point kind of making fun of the internet, but just kind of turned into just wanting to celebrate Titus and get him a win. Mm-hmm. Cause there's, you know, there's some, there's a romantic arc with Titus. There's, there really is a, a character development, but because the show is so dense with jokes, they kind of flip it in here and there, but it helps that the actor Titus, who's playing an actor named Titus, is so good at displaying a humanity in the brief moments that they allow people to have that in that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this season in particular, he, it's a real, it's a real powerhouse performance. But I, it made me question if he is the best kind of Tina Fey creation. Like, is he better than, uh, you know, Alec Baldwin, now, like, legendary turn as Jack Donaghy? Like, is this Titus character the best that she's done? Well, and so that, you know, in your piece, um, there was one part of your piece that, that uh, I, I utterly understood the point that you were making, and, and I think you also would concede the kind of the opposite of that point. But one of the points you make is that she kind of does, or she and Carlac do, you know, writer's jokes in a sense that you really are noticing the writing. Wow, somebody wrote a terrific joke and somebody else just yeah, said it. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's one of my favorite things in the world. I'm just the person who, who loves jokes, and I love when shows kind of disregard things. I mean, the, you know, there's the example that I, I often will use, and Third Rock will do this all the time, there's a complete fluidity of the type of things characters know. You just have dumb characters making such such intelligent references. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, there's a time where Kimmy Schmidt uh, uh, shows up, Kimmy's there, and then uh, I can't, uh, Jane Kirkassi's character mm-hmm. is like, oh, I thought that was a, Jeff Koons sculpture of Ron McDonald. Like, why would that be something that she has at her disposal? Or, or she makes a Rem Coolhouse joke, which is so dense and has such clever wordplay. It's not something a human would say, and definitely not the characters they established. But because there's this kind of flexible reality that is this kind of Tina Fey tone mm-hmm. that she has, which is, you know, again, it's it's similar to The Simpsons tone, where every once in a while Homer was allowed to say things that people from Harvard wrote, um, that's just the magic of these shows, that if a joke is good enough and the reality is flexible enough, you allow, you just keep on pushing in it, um, and it doesn't break this reality because the reality is so weird and so flexible in that, that you can allow certain indulgences. I mean, like, Robert Durst is just a character in this season of the show. Right. And I I do have to say that as much as these are kind of writer's jokes, it's also very important to have actors who can deliver these lines. And not every good comic actor could do these things. A lot of the lines have three or four different beats in them uh, or or circle back to to a different reality. Uh, And it's been very interesting watching Carol Kane, who speaks. She speaks at a different pace. She's a national treasure anyway, but she speaks at a very different pace from the typical character that Faye writes for. And it's interesting to hear those Faye and Carlisle jokes slowed down a little bit and they're actually yeah. funnier sometimes because she draws them out. I, I do want to say one thing about this and you know you made a yeah. comparison between season two of Kimmy Schmidt and 30 Rock and I think it's, yeah. a, it's a really interesting comparison but I also feel as though there's a, and this is my, my I see politics everywhere these days I guess but you know 30 sure. Rock 30 Rock was a very Clinton infused narrative Bill Clinton in sure. particular it was very much about leaving your white or black working class past and trying to mm-hmm. be somebody else so Jenna and Kenneth both came from the world of these kind of rural, rural Oxycontin abusers and trailer park stepfathers who try to get in your pants. Uh, and, and Tracy uh, was the epitome of this black show business, Aravist, who would still 
clung to all kinds of bizarre things in his past. This is so, was so much about transcending, if you were anybody other than Jack Donaghy, your, your sort of Bill Clinton and Paula Corbin Jones past. And, and the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I think, is located much more in the kind of Sanders and Trump reality. It's about people who have failed to advance socioeconomically. There's one rich character, the one played by Jane Krakowski, not for nothing, but she is falling, falling, falling down through socioeconomic stratus. She's down to her last 12 million. But uh, everybody else is solidly rooted in this kind of underclass that that is having trouble making progress. I mean, Titus and, and Kimmy seem like, you know, broke Hillary Rodham Clinton supporters and Lillian is fighting gentrification, but probably would miss the point and vote for Trump. You know, these are people who it's a different kind of show that way. I, I will say uh, now, I, you know, I don't necessarily I'm, I'm less likely to put a political plant on it. But I do also think there is you know, coming out of an Obama era nature to it just because there's a lot of identity in the sense of like Kimmy by missing so much culture is trying to figure out who she is. And then Jane Krakowski's character had that whole thing with the the being part Native American that she has to come to identify with. And, you know, Titus is kind of grappling with, you know, being gay and being being masculine and there's jokes that are kind of rooted in that and obviously the entire episode where they criticize the internet is kind of also built in that and there's you know the whole thing with the cult is kind of who are you if you are not just being let you know there's a lot of these questions of like who are these people you know Kimby is trying to figure out who she is because she didn't really have a life Mm -hmm. um so i think there is that reading it's it's interesting to how much the show i need to think about the show is Set in the same city as Dirty Rockets, but it's a completely no one. These people barely have jobs. They're all like working. <laughs> yet they, um, and that struggle does catalyze a lot right. of. The, They're struggling. The yeah. Jesse David yeah. Fox, we have to go. Senior editor at Vulture. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you like our show, if you like conversations like the one you just heard. Nice people are going to ask you to support this show. It means more if we get your pledge during our show time frame. So think about that. Think about other shows we've done in the last year that you've liked and maybe make a pledge. <laughs>